Well, good morning. You know, I want to uh, just make sure I start by saying thank you to you guys for praying for me. Um, in the past several months for really joining the world in praying and uh, I just appreciate your your love and support and your obedience in that and your participation in in the miracles that God has done and it's my privilege to to share with you some of that and you know I'll talk about some of what went on with me, but um, my desire is really to just brag on God and what God has done and is doing, and so I, I hope that uh, that will come across. So, uh, as Scott said earlier, I was a pastor for for 18 years at Grace Community Church, just around the corner. And I stepped down three and a half years ago to begin to write more and uh, travel full time. And so I spend most of my time uh, traveling internationally to do pastors conferences in developing world nations and in areas where pastors don't have access to training or can't afford it or both. And so I actually began doing that about 15 years ago, doing it one trip a year when I was pastoring. And then since stepping down, I... I do more. Uh, I did 11, no, yeah, 11 trips two, two years ago and nine last year. And I was actually scheduled for about that many this year. I only done two. Something happened in, in the meantime. So anyway, I thank you again for, for praying for me, and, and I still need it. So the first week of May, I was in Nigeria doing a pastor's conference, and uh, we were in Kaduna, Nigeria, which is about two hours north of Abuja, the capital city of Nigeria. And the way Nigeria is kind of laid out um, from Abuja south is primarily Christian. Abuja north is primarily Muslim. So we were traveling into uh, a difficult region. And Kaduna was like the last outpost for Christians almost. That city was or is pretty specifically divided. Uh, half of it Christian, another half Muslim, and they don't usually cross the line. Um, several years ago, they had one of the worst riots in the country originating in Kaduna. And hundreds were killed and hundreds of churches were burned and and, and it spread, you know, really throughout the nation, but it began there. That quieted down, and they kind of reached a bit of a um, treaty, I guess, or, or, or I can't think of the word. Part of part of my recovery is my brain, because I got cerebral malaria and it attacked my brain, and I'm much better now. But I still have these moments where the brain doesn't work, and I have no idea what I'm talking about or uh, miss words or something. So if I get lost or something, y'all just either be patient or help me out. Um, the first time I preached, I couldn't come up with the word um, dialysis. And, you know, I just stood there stupid for a second. And finally I said, you know what that thing your kidneys do, the machine do for it? And 
Somebody shouted dialysis. That was helpful. Anyway, um, what was I talking about? Kaduna. Okay, anyway, I don't, I don't want to spend too much time here, but uh, in that region, those pastors that came to that conference um, were from northern Nigeria. And about 200 pastors came, and it was so humbling to be able to invest in them uh, because those guys are in the middle of it. We have no concept of what they go through every day to do their job, to even be Christian. Um, most of them have seen friends and family members murdered in front of them by the Boko Haram. Many of them have had churches burned down, um, destroyed. The government is less than helpful in, in helping them rebuild or do anything. They can't get permits for it. So if their church, church burns down, they're, they're out of luck. They can't rent a space. They can't rebuild. They can't do anything because the government's not helpful. And they're under constant threat. And they were coming to Kaduna to be encouraged, inspired, and, and, and trained so that they could go back to their city and keep doing the same thing. And it was just amazing to have the opportunity. And I was there with uh, Joel T. Meyer. He's a, he's a pastor in Sulphur Springs. And Charles Ikutiminu. Charles is a Nigerian pastor who uh, spent several years in, in London uh, as an associate pastor of a church. Then he moved to D.C., was working at a church there for, for a while, and then has recently moved to Frisco. So Joel and I have decided that it's our job now to make Charles a Texan. So we're going to take him to eat barbecue, you know, shoot some guns, you know, things Texans do. And so we're looking forward to that. Anyway, while, we, while I was in Nigeria... Um, one night, uh, Joel and I were sitting out on the patio, and uh, it was too hot in our rooms. You know, we didn't have air conditioning, and, and it was hot. You know, when people say Africa hot, you know, it was, it was hot. And uh, anyway, we're sitting outside, and I'm reading the book on my Kindle, and, and uh, Joel's actually trying to sleep, but he can't because the mosquitoes are eating him alive. And he's got mosquitoes laying on constantly, swatting them off, you know, and... and Nothing landed on me. I think I saw one mosquito and swatted away before it bit me. I never felt a mosquito bite me once. Didn't have an itch because of it. Nothing. Evidently, I was bit by at least one mosquito. My mosquito was carrying malaria. My mosquito carrying malaria was an overachiever. He was carrying cerebral malaria, which is the worst kind of malaria you can get. So I came home from Nigeria, um, was home for 10 days, and then Karen and I went to Siberia to do a church planting conference. And so uh, the malaria showed up there in, in, in Siberia. Uh, just in case you, you know, ever thought about it, Siberia is the absolute worst place in the world for, for malaria to show up. They have, those doctors that I eventually saw had never seen malaria, had never diagnosed it, had never treated it. There wasn't any medication in the hospital. Um, there was nothing in the city. We were in a city of about 500,000 people. And, and Karen says I, I was getting sick on the plane right over. I don't remember that. I mean, I was 
certainly conscious during that. I just, evidently, I was just feeling bad. Got there on a Friday morning. She said, Saturday, I got even sicker. She took me to a doctor. Um, that doctor, you know, I had the real bad hiccups. Couldn't get rid of them. Doctor gave me a shot, which knocked me out. Went back to the hotel. I don't remember this at all. I remember getting there. I remember having breakfast, checking into our hotel. I remember buying a coat that night because it was colder than we expected. <laughs> Siberia. And uh, so uh, the next day, I remember having breakfast. And then that's it. That's the last memory I have. But every day I went through that day, too. I was supposed to preach in church on Saturday night and, and three services on Sunday. That didn't happen. And Sunday night, she said, I went to sleep well and was sleeping good until about 2 o'clock in the morning. I started getting very restless, I guess, uh, talking nonsense. She tried to, to wake me up, but uh, you know, I was unresponsive. And she said, I didn't recognize her. I was, you know, just wasn't making sense, more so than usual. And uh, um, she started to freak out a little bit. So she went downstairs uh, to the front desk, to the two girls at the front desk with her phone, because they didn't speak English. She took Google Translate with her, said, we need an ambulance. You know, I'm going to go up and get him, bring him down here to the lobby to meet the ambulance. They said, okay. So those girls started to freak out just a little bit, too. Anyway, Karen went back upstairs, couldn't get me out of bed, um, went back downstairs, said, I need some help. So she went back up, and they sent the security guard, the hotel security, up to our room. And uh, he didn't speak English either, but he um, was trying to help Karen get me up to get me downstairs, and the two of them couldn't get me out of bed. So as soon as this security guard in a hotel in Siberia, in a country that's less than 1% Christian, saw that, that he really couldn't help me, couldn't get me out of bed, he immediately hit his knees and started praying. And he prayed, Karen said, for 30, 45 minutes till the ambulance showed up. I mean, I mean, that's not really miracle number one because we had several leading up to that. But, I mean, what are the odds, I guess? And so, so she's waiting, listening to him pray. And uh, I asked her, was he praying in Russian? She said, you're praying in Russian or praying in tongues. I don't know which. And, but he was praying. He was praying hard. And, uh, I mean, in, in Russia, I mean, less than 1% Christian. And even the Christians aren't that vocal. I mean, because, you know, it, it's, it's legal and all now. There's, there's some things that, are, that, are, that the government makes difficult, but not, not a lot. But still, culturally and in society and stuff, you, you're not that open about it. But this guy was. Anyway, the ambulance showed up. Well, it wasn't really an ambulance. It was a, um, it was a cargo van. You know, with a cot in it, Karen said. And uh, these guys came up to get me and uh, carried me down five flights of stairs on this tarp. They didn't have a gurney on wheels or anything. I don't think we would have fit in the elevator anyway. 
carried me down on this tarp, slid me in the back of this cargo van, put me on the cot. And uh, Karen says it's about 45 minutes to the hospital. And I got to the hospital. They finally put me on a gurney of sorts and wheeled me in, stuck me in a hall, and then left. And by then, I, had, I was having difficulty breathing. And, uh, I mean, lots of things were going downhill. And Karen's wondering when somebody's going to show up. Um, shortly after that, I went, to in, went into a coma. And I was in a coma for 10 days. And I, you know, I couldn't breathe on my own. Um, my heart wasn't working right. And the doctors didn't know what to do with me. They tested me for everything that they could think of. And it was like the second day or something that they finally heard Karen say that I had been in Nigeria two weeks earlier. And, and so then they thought, oh, well, maybe he's got malaria. And they tested me for that and decided that that's what I had. But, but there wasn't any medicine. You know, the, uh, the, the hospital administrator called all over town, every pharmacy that there was, looking for medicine. They finally found two boxes of pills at two different pharmacies. And uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't medication for cerebral malaria. That's very specific. It was just generic malaria medicine, older generic malaria medicine that was like third tier down. It wasn't the good stuff. But they found two boxes of pills, which was enough to keep someone who had malaria alive for about 24 hours. It wasn't, I mean, I, I, mean, I guess it kept me alive. Maybe, you know. But they brought that back and had to crush it up. They were pills. I was in a coma. I couldn't take pills. So they had to crush it up and put it in my IV. And um, just to put this in perspective, let's see. We were, let's see, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday night. So this is like five days in, okay? With cerebral, cerebral malaria, if you don't get the right medication within 72 hours, the prognosis goes in the toilet. And we were five days in. And they finally found the wrong malaria medicine. It was actually three days later when the French showed up that, that they brought cerebral malaria medication. So that, that by itself should have killed me. I, mean, I, I should be dead for lots and lots of reasons. And, and don't have time to, to give you all the reasons. It's, you know, not that, well, it's a big deal, but, well, suffice it to say, God was setting things up and, and going to use this. I almost felt like, in thinking back on it, like Job, when, you know, have you considered my servant Steve? Let's just, let's, let's let him suffer everything. God was gracious. I was in a coma this whole time, so I didn't actually suffer that much. I don't remember any of it. Um, anyway, so from that first day, Karen kind of entered into her own private hell because those doctors told her every time they saw her, I was going to die. And really, I was. I mean, as far as, you know, medically, I should have been dead. 
I mean, my, my medical report got sent back to my doctor here. Uh, he looked at it. My son-in-law looked at it. A friend of ours who's a PA looked at it, and all of them were like, yeah, he's not going to make it. My, uh, I had, had, had kidney failure. My liver had, uh, had failed. My spleen had grown to twice its size. And, and the way they put it was his, his spleen is about to explode. Now, I have no idea what your spleen does, but I'm pretty sure it's not supposed to explode. And, and uh, so, like, I was on the edge. I, I, I couldn't breathe on my own. Uh, Karen said they had to keep giving me uh, some combination of adrenaline and blood pressure medicine because my heart kept stopped beating. Kept stopped beating. Is that right? Anyway, without that, you know, my heart would have stopped. And so the, 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 uh, the way the, the, the Russian hospitals work is you don't have access to, to the doctors, you know, really at all until they decide so. Karen was able to get information from, our doc, from those doctors between 10 in the morning and 1 in the afternoon. And so usually about 10 every morning, Ilya, the pastor there who spoke English, the, you know, the guy we were working with, he would call in or he and his wife Janet would come and get Karen and they would drive to the hospital. They could get a report on how I was doing once a day. And the report was usually, he's going to die. He, he will be surprised if he lives another 12 hours. Thanks for coming by. Actually, they didn't say that. And then she would go back to the hotel room by herself in a country where no one spoke English and pace the hotel room, listen to worship music, and pray. So, you know, things weren't going so well. Anyway, uh, I think somewhere around day two, they began to try to figure out how to get me out of Russia. One really good thing that, that God set up ahead of time is I, I wanted a three-year visa because I go back to, I go to Russia every year and was going to go a couple times this year and probably a couple times next year. And it, it's, it's a real pain to fill out all the paperwork it takes to get a Russian visa. They've made it quite complicated and difficult in response to how complicated and difficult it is for them to get a visa to come to America. So politically, countries have gone back and forth and made the visa process difficult. And so I'm like, I want a, I want a three-year visa. So I don't have to do this. Well, a three-year visa requires a certain level of insurance. A regular visa doesn't have any requirements at all other than tell them everything there is to know about you. But we had to have this massive insurance policy, which actually only cost $600. We spent a little bit more than that. And, you know, it came with oh, $50,000 of in-country medical coverage, $100,000 of this, emergency evacuation, you know, all this stuff that came that we had to have on this policy. So we had on there, you know, private jet, medical jet evacuation if, if there was a need, and there was a need. So they began looking for a way to get me out of the country, but we're having difficulty because nobody wanted me. The Russians didn't want me to stay there because if I had stayed to stay in Russia, it really meant I was going to die because while they, those doctors were doing a great job, they didn't have the tools necessary 
you know, to really treat me well. So they wanted me to go out, but I wasn't stable enough to leave. So none of the, none of the transport companies, the medical people, none of them wanted to come get me because I was going to die. And it was questionable if I would even make it from the hospital to the plane, much less make it at altitude for seven hours or however long it took to get somewhere. We had a team from Doha that was supposed to be coming. They canceled. Karen, I mean, they found, I don't know who found, who found the team from France? Bob found it. Bob, Dr. Duell found it. Um, it took them about three days to finally come through. They kept delaying for one reason or another. But honestly, I wasn't stable enough to travel. I could, it's, it's a good thing they did delay because I wouldn't have made it if I'd left any earlier. Though it was, you know, pretty sketchy, even when I did leave. But, but they, they, finally, they finally showed up and um, brought with them the right medication. Now, we are, we're now, what, eight days in before I get the right medicine. But the issue was that um, this medication didn't exist in Russia. So, therefore, this medication wasn't allowed in Russia. So they couldn't administer, the, the Russian doctors couldn't administer this medicine because it wasn't approved by the government. The French couldn't administer this medicine in a Russian hospital for the same reason. So they really couldn't give it to me until I was on the plane. But because of the length of the flight over, the French doctors had to take a mandatory eight-hour rest before they could put me on the plane. So it was going to be even longer. And everybody was nervous about this. Again, you just, I mean, nothing was going right. And so anyway, uh, but they must have stuck in their bag anyway. And they were going to go to a hotel and rest and then come, come back eight hours later. But they came to the hospital first. And they met the, they met the hospital administrator in, in, I guess, my room when they got there. And she asked them, did you bring the medicine with you? And, and they said, yes. You know, they weren't going to admit anything because, you know, yes, of course, it's on a plane or something. And that was okay. And she said, no, do you have it with you? And they said, yeah, yeah, we have it with us. And she said, I need to leave the room for a minute. So she left the room, and they slipped me some drugs, and then went to rest. Now, at, at that time, and I'm not exactly sure what these numbers mean, the parasite level per milliliter of blood or something was like 500,000, a little high. And so they gave me the medication. Eight hours later, when they showed up, it was down to 90,000. So medicine was working. 90,000 was still way too high. And even as they were wheeling me out to take me to the plane, um, the Russian doctors were telling Ilya, we really don't, still don't think he's going to make it. And if he does make it, if he actually wakes up, he's probably going to be a vegetable or have some kind of permanent brain damage because of the attack on my brain with cerebral malaria. Well, we, the, through another set of circumstances that were really cool, they found the one ambulance that was in the country, or in, in the city, 
and uh, I actually got this one ambulance for free to transport me to the plane. That was really a, that's a cool story. But anyway, so there they take me to the plane because they had to have an ambulance because they had all these all this stuff attached to me. They had to keep running because I still wasn't breathing on my own. My heart still wasn't working right. Organs were still shut down. You know, all this stuff was still going on. In the process, I had, uh, I had developed a blood infection that, that they didn't know what it was. Took a, had to take a spinal tap and test it so they'd know what kind of antibiotics put me on for that infection. A couple days after that, I developed sepsis. So that was going on, too, in addition to the other infection, in addition to my organs failing, in addition to I couldn't breathe, in addition to my heart wanting to stop, in addition to, you know, malaria still wreaking havoc on my body. And so there was lots of reasons why this wasn't going to work. And, you know, they, they sent me to the plane, and they put me on this lift in, to get me up into the plane. Did the next slide. Um, so good. the plane went in there, plane slide? Yeah, okay, sorry. They put me on this lift, so I was on a, on a gurney thing, and, uh, but, you know, this wasn't, it wasn't a thing you walk through to get to the plane. It was drive out on the tarmac and wheel him out there. And so they put me on this lift, and, and they couldn't figure out how to work the lift. I don't know why. But Karen said they farted with this lift for about 30 minutes while I was sitting on top of it in the rain in Siberia. And a good time to be in a coma, you know, because I'm thinking that might have been miserable in any other circumstance. And so they finally, they finally got it up there, um, took me on this private jet to Paris and uh, got me settled into an ICU in the hospital there and then those guys began working on me and uh, so that was on the 25th of May I guess five days later on May the 30th um, they removed the breathing tube you know I could breathe on my own and I woke up in the middle of a sponge bath yeah no there's not a slide for that. <laughs> it was one of the most odd and uncomfortable experiences of my life. As not only was I in the middle of a sponge bath with two different nurses, a male nurse and a female nurse, they were being thorough. And, and I couldn't move. You know, I was too weak to move and, you know, just woke up from a 10-day coma and is going on I know this in heaven <laughs> you know and um, thank the Lord I fell back asleep pretty quickly um, because I, I, I couldn't speak couldn't tell him to quit you know it's like man and so I went back to sleep I woke up a little bit later and Karen was in the room with me and uh, she asked me she says do you know where you are Who are these people? <laughs> Why are they touching me? And <laughs> she says, you're in France. I said, France? I went to sleep in Siberia. And I woke up in France. In a hospital. I said, 
am I doing here? I mean, I, I ready to speak over a whisper. My, my throat and my vocal cords were all screwed up from the tube, you know, that was in my, in my throat for so long. And, and uh, so I was like, what am I doing? And she said that one of, the first things I, one of the first things I asked her after that was, did I do the conference? That was important to me. I was in charge of the church planting conference in Siberia. And I never set foot in the church. The team, there are two other guys that were with me on them. They just basically picked up all my sessions and did the thing without a hitch. They did an amazing job. Anyway, um, but I, I, I couldn't move. I couldn't move really for over a week. I, I couldn't lift my arms past my knee this high. I had an itch on my nose. I had to get Karen to you know, move my hands so I could scratch my nose. I couldn't feed myself, couldn't go to the bathroom. I couldn't pick up my cup of water or anything. I mean, either, either Karen or our nurse had come in to straw in my mouth just so I get a drink. And it was, it was just a, um, it was an interesting experience to be, to be that helpless, you know, and, and have to have someone do everything for you. And, you know, have obviously, you know, no privacy at all. And forced humility on you. And, and, and as Karen began to tell me what happened, you know, it was just really wigging me out. Really, all that happened. And uh, she started telling me about how many people were praying. And I didn't really get that for until really we got home. But... Um, you know, those, that, that week that it took, you know, before, before we actually flew home was just really, really different. I mean, experiencing that level of helplessness was really something. The last day we, they had moved me out of ICU, um, into a regular room and that last day these two physical therapists came in, and they wanted me to stand up. And I'm laying there, you know, because I really can't move. Why, why are we doing this? Well, you need to start physical therapy. So I'm going home tomorrow. Why are we starting physical therapy now? Oh, they told us to come down here. We're down here. You need to stand up. Okay, I'll stand up. And so I managed to, they managed to sit me up on the side of the bed, and I stood up. I thought I stood up. Karen said they basically picked me up and were holding me up. You know, they had my hands on a walker, and, you know, I stood and then sat back down on the bed and stood back up, sat back down on the bed. Then one more time, and I was so exhausted, and, you know, I said, okay, we're done. i got to lay down. I mean, I stood up three times. And that night, uh, Karen was leaving to go to, she was actually staying with a pastor and his wife in town that had taken care of us. That was, that was amazing, Pastor Mark. Um, one of the guys on our team in Siberia knew this pastor in, in Paris and called him when, when he found out we were going to Paris. And he called, he called this guy at 7 in the morning. My kids came to Paris uh, to be with their mom. They landed at 9. He was at the airport. Took care of them all day long. Uh, met Karen at the airport, you know, at midnight, took her back to the hotel. This guy was amazing and took care of them for a week, really. 
Um, anyway. Oh, so so she was she was leaving for the night, and she she walks around to the to the to the bed, and she she kind of gets right in my face, and she says, "Listen, in the middle of the night, when you have to go to the bathroom, don't try to go by yourself." Now I don't know why she felt a need to say that to me. I'm not the kind of person who would you know be that stupid. I mean I. It's a very male thing, I guess. You know, why would I do that? You know, I, I love it when nurses come and take me to the bathroom and help me go to the bathroom. I'm not going to try this on my own. But she, she knew I had stood that day. And I, I assured her there was no way I was going to do that. And, well, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I had to go to the bathroom. I really had to go. And I had the button, you know, that you could push to get the nurse, and they'd show right up. But I didn't want to push the button. I didn't want to have a nurse take me to the bathroom again. Besides, I stood up today. And the door to the bathroom was like this far away. I'm talking, it was like one step, and I have a hold of the door. So I'm thinking, I can stand up, Right? And I'll put my, I can, I can rest one hand on this little, this little table, little table by my bed that had a glass carafe on it with my water in it, glass. And I'll rest on this table, and then it's like half a step, I get the doorknob, I can make it. I don't know what I was going to do once I got in there, but I mean, I just know I could get that far. <laughs> I managed to sit up somehow. And uh, I, st I stood up, kind of, put my hand on the table, promptly turned the table over. The glass carafe fell on the ground, broke. I fell on top of the broken glass, cut my head, and promptly peed all over myself. <laughs> Not my best moment. And so I'm laying on the ground, on the broken glass, thinking, hmm, that, that thought that I've had about a thousand times, I should have listened to my wife. Guys, you know what I'm talking about? Should, should have. And so I'm, I'm laying there, and I'm like, well, crap. Now I'm laying on the ground on top of broken glass. My head's bleeding. And, you know, what am I going to do? And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, if I can just roll over, then I can crawl back to the bed on broken glass and hit that button. I tried three times. I could not even roll over. Finally, somebody happened to walk by. I think I must have been on the ground 30 or 45 minutes. At least it seemed like that. It might have been three minutes, but it seemed like forever. Finally, a nurse showed up and she said some things in French. I don't know what. <laughs> Probably cussing at me. I don't know. Went and got somebody else. Ended up getting four of them to put me on this thing, pick me up, put me in the bed. And, but while I was laying on the ground, God decides to speak to me. And 
I'm all for God speaking to me. His timing is a little off sometimes. Because I'm like, God, I'm laying on the ground of broken glass. Peed on myself. Can we use this teachable moment some other time? Just get me off the ground. And, you know, I never win those kind of arguments. And so anyway, he just kind of started talking to me about helplessness. And, and how helpless we are apart from him. And how, how much we need him in everything. I mean, it doesn't take much, you know, most Christians get that we're helpless in terms of our own salvation. You know, there's nothing we can do. But too often, after, after that, we live as if we got it from here. And there's something, there's something in us that is determined to do it, do things on our own. I don't know what stubborn pride or, or whatever, we want to be self-sufficient. And we want to do things on our own, even though we can't. And so God began to just kind of work that into me. Because, I mean, I've preached this before. You know, I've preached these scriptures I still haven't gotten to yet. But, uh, but I never really knew the depths of it until I was laying on the ground and I broke broken glass and couldn't turn over. And God's like, this is who you are apart from me. Every effort that you, that you make on your own to do anything good for me is about as effective as your efforts right now. And I thought, wow, that's kind of heavy. But he's right. I mean, the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, uh, it talks about being lukewarm. And what, like, what does it mean to be lukewarm? Well, he says, I know your works, you're neither hot nor, nor cold nor hot. Which, you're either cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm... And either hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Well, what's it mean to be lukewarm? You know, what, well, I'm either on fire for Jesus or I'm not. And we can define lukewarm based on, you know, water temperature or something and kind of get this idea of it. But he defines it right here. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Maybe the fast track to being God vomit. Have that attitude. I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Well, none of us really say that out loud. But we live that way. Way too. All, all of us do. Even the best of us. I can do this on my own. I'll pray if things get really bad. Good story, Steve. I know if I was in that situation, you know, I'd be praying too. Yes, I get it. Y'all were helpless. I'll do that if the time, if and when the time comes. But we kind of live that way. And and too often we settle for mediocrity. 
not even knowing that that's what we're doing because we're trying to do the best we can do. Now listen, this room is full of really smart people. And, and, and together, our own collective ignorance, we can probably do some good things. We can accomplish some stuff. You could fill this room. You know, we, 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 could, we, we could figure out how to do that. I mean, the world, you know, has demonstrated this. We can start a movement. We can, you know, get people that supposedly have changed lives. You know, we, we can do all of this. People do, it all, people do it all the time. But if we do it on our own, we're settling for so much less than if we recognized our own helplessness and our desperate need to recognize our own desperate neediness. And if we could just get over ourselves and stop trying to live up to something that we'll never live up to. If we would have stopped trying to prove ourselves and let God prove us instead. If we just quit trying to do things out of our own power, we might accidentally see the power of God show up. I want some of that. Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 15... He said, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's within me. I need to see myself for who I really am. Nothing apart from God. I need to get myself to that place where, where I, I, I cry out to God quickly. Not just in a crisis. I need to get to that place where I recognize the church for what it is. We are meant to live together in community. We are meant to work together. We have this need for each other that was placed in us at creation. This is who we are. You want to represent Jesus in the world today? You must, you must be part of the body because it's the church that's the body of Christ. It's together. Relying on the power of God that we represent Jesus in the world. Not by ourselves. By ourselves, we're nothing. I gotta get this place where I can really see that for what it's what it is. We need, we need to be a people that pursues humility and disciplines this in us, in ourselves. Ephesians 3, Paul said really the same thing. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Now, quickly, we, I mean, who's Paul? Paul's, well, he's the biblical rock star, right? Wrote, wrote most of the New Testament. Paul's greatness. Oh, it's just because we've read the end of the book, maybe. But this isn't who Paul was. Paul said, I was made a minister according to the grace of God. 
not according to my own ability. Paul didn't see himself that way. He says, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. Now listen, I think Paul said this because he believed it. I don't think Paul was trying to make a point. I don't think Paul was, was exercising false humility. I don't think that he was, you know, well, let's just, I mean, yeah, I'm great and all, but I'm the least of all saints. I think he really, he actually really believed what he wrote. To me, though, I'm the least of all saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I must continually remind myself of who I am apart from God so that the power of God might be manifest in me so that I might know then who I am in Christ because that's greatness. In Christ, you and I are saints We are holy. We are the righteousness of God. In Christ, his power shows. In Christ, Ephesians 1 says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the world was, before he spoke the world into existence, he spoke your name. And he called you. To be in Christ. That's who we really are. But apart from him, we're nothing. I need to control my own thoughts, actions, and emotions. I need to recognize my own tendencies towards self-sufficiency. I need to be honest about my own stubbornness. My own desire to prove myself. I, I, I need to, to, to be ruthlessly honest about my capacity for sin, for doing things on my own, so that I might set myself aside and let God show up. Finally, if he, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm, I'm kind of close to done. Preacher talk, that means i got like 20 minutes left. But um, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talking about his thorn in the flesh. I'm not going to expound on what the thorn in the flesh was. I have no idea what it is. Um, three times he says, I plead with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I don't know if you guys underline in your Bibles or not. You ought to underline that or highlight it on whatever electronic device you have. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. You want to see God's power show up? Be honest about your weakness. Be okay with that. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that 
so that, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Too many people in the church today are inactive, are hesitant, are scared, are insecure because I don't know enough, I haven't been to seminary, I'm not Billy Graham. Who cares? You don't know what I've done. You know, and we forget what Paul said. I'm the least of all saints because I persecuted the church of God. You guys understand God chose a terrorist to write half the, most of the New Testament? Paul was terrorizing the church before Jesus showed up to him. You know, Ilya said that, uh, that I had a bigger impact on his church in Siberia than anything else in the history of the church. I was in a coma. I never set foot in the building. You guys can do better than that. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I spent a day, one day reading uh, all of Karen's Facebook posts. I don't see the picture of strength. You need to read her Facebook post. And uh, and what she was going through was was pretty terrible. And she initially called some people that you know pray with her and. Obviously, told the girls, and you know, after she really filled the girls in on how things were, then she started posting a bit on Facebook. And 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 Karen didn't do what most Christians do. She didn't pontificate with all the right things to say if you're a Christian. You know, you know, you know how it is. Christians never admit their own weakness, their fears or failures or whatever. And I read one post where Karen said, I don't have any faith right now. I need your faith. Could y'all have faith enough for me? Who says that? Well, my wife does. And, uh, you know, I, I get to be the one to stand up and tell a story and preach and get excited and stuff. And, but God used my wife to touch the world. And, and as we've talked about this, um, we... We realize that this whole story had so little to do with us. It really didn't have a whole lot to do with even me being alive. I'm thankful for that. 
And I'm glad that, that that's part of the story. But it was so much bigger than that. You know, as I started looking through things, I mean, we're, we're guessing easily over 10,000 people around the world were praying for us. Somewhere between 20 and 30 different countries. Just based on messages that Karen and the girls were getting you know, on social media. And we were hearing stories about people that, that, that we don't even know. So many, so many messages that people would send, you know, Karen something and say that, you know, I was, I, I read the post and I was driven to my knees in prayer. I heard about what's going on. I started weeping and praying. I couldn't sleep all night. Our whole church started praying. These are people that we don't even know. Who does that? And it's not like I'm this household name or anything. I mean, my friends here prayed hard for me because they love me and they know me. People in the other side of the world they have no idea who we are. God was was, is up to something. And we still don't even know what that, what that ultimately is. But God was, was using this, is using this story to touch people and to change people and wake up the church to the power of prayer. And we're just in awe at what he's doing. One person told us, really the only explanation is God's just showing off. And we get to be along for the ride. To really see what God will do when we are absolutely helpless to do anything on our own but rely on him. I'll never think about that the same again. Because it doesn't make sense that it was that there was that this kind of outpouring that people were, had been touched this deeply except that God did this. Where we are weak, he is strong. At best under our own strength we could have gotten a few hundred people to pray. And God's not impressed by numbers, and he doesn't need 10,000 people to decide to heal someone. He can do that with one. I mean, it's not my point. My point is he was doing something else, even bigger. He's just waiting on somebody desperate enough to admit that they could do anything on somebody comatose enough to be unable and so so we get to witness the awesome power of God at work in his church through us to a degree 
and we couldn't do anything on our own. I just want to see that some more. And I know this, that I must discipline myself in this when things are going well so that I am prepared when things come crashing down to throw myself in front of God and say, I need you desperately. I want to be quick to do that. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll go on. God, I just thank you that that you are awesome and that you are great. And that your desire to, to touch each of us, to use each of us. I thank you, God, that it's our weaknesses that qualify us. Help us, God, to discipline ourselves in that way, to pursue humility, to learn to rely on you fully in everything. Drill that deep in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Yeah. As we prepare to take the supper this morning, um, I wonder if you it's fitting for us to hear testimonies like what we've heard this morning because they are proclamations of the greatness of God and we are about the greatness of God as the people of God. But the, the testimonies make us uncomfortable. I, I hope you were uncomfortable at times hearing what was going on, that desperation. I don't personally like feelings of anxiety. I don't personally like feelings of weakness or not being in control. And as I hear his story, I just, oh, it, it kind of makes my skin crawl at some of those points because of the very things we need to tend to when we take the supper. So that's what we're looking at this morning. Steve and I had lunch a couple weeks ago, and I realized at one point that I was just peppering him with questions. What about this? Tell me about this. What, what happened here? And I said, I'm sorry. Does it, does it feel like I'm interviewing you? And he said, kind of. I said, well, I feel like I'm having lunch with Lazarus right now. <laughs> and, and I just kind of want to get all the questions answered, and so it's a special moment. So... This morning, I think it's fitting, as you hear something like that, and you hear those kinds of stories, and our Bible is full of those kinds of stories, there's two things I want us to consider as we take the supper together this morning. The first is if you are not believing in Jesus Christ. I mentioned Lazarus. He was, he was dead and decaying and stinking. And um, you hear that desperation that was in Steve's story about being able to do absolutely nothing on his own. If you are not following Christ if you have not confessed your sins to Christ, if you have not um, repented and, and put your faith in Jesus, that is your state in your sin. Completely desperate. All of sin fallen short of the glory of God, and there's nothing we can do about it on our own. We desperately need Jesus. So as we take the supper, if you have not done that, I want to encourage you to think about how incredibly helpless you are in your sin, but how beautifully equipped you are in Christ. If you're given the gift of salvation, to be completely freed from your sin as far as the east is from the west. The second thing for us to consider is for those who are believing. Steve mentioned in his sermon, I need to recognize my own tendencies towards self-sufficiency. I need to recognize my own tendencies towards self-sufficiency, and I need to be ruthlessly honest about my capacity for sin. 
That's a, that's a statement even of those who are saved. And it says in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's an anticipation. Then he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's take a few minutes as we pass the elements out to examine ourselves. Are we putting our faith completely in Jesus? Is there any part of our own strength that we're holding on to? Are we relying wholly on him? As we distribute the elements, I want you to consider that and examine yourself, and we'll take and eat. Let's...